Today's passage comes from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 11. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For the Lord your God, I am the Lord your God, and I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you your, or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Amen. So when I was a kid, if you'd have stopped me on the street and quizzed me on the Ten Commandments, I think I probably would have gotten some of the more famous ones, some of the more well-known ones. I mean, you can almost guess at that, even if you've never heard of the Ten Commandments, you're thinking, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. I was regularly reminded as a kid that thou shalt not lie. Apparently that was an issue. Uh, Who knew? Except my parents. But there's one that I would have gotten that isn't all that popular. It's not one that most people would understand or know or have known about if you stopped him on the street. And it's the one that you just heard, the last one that was listed there, the fourth commandment, except I would have said it a little bit differently as a kid. I would have said on Sunday, thou shalt do nothing. And, um, and because that was my experience, honestly, growing up, it was on Sunday, thou shalt do nothing. I think my mother was never more mortified than when on a Sunday my grandmother called, but just before she called, I had finally badgered my parents into allowing me to go to a movie on Sunday. And I'm not kidding, that's probably the only movie I've ever been to on a Sunday, as far as I can recall. But I beat them down, and I beat them down, and I beat them down, and I beat them down. And kids are amazing negotiators, by the way. Like, somehow we lose our negotiating abilities as we get older, we get worse at it. Kids are the best at it. So I wore my parents down to the place where they said, okay, finally, go, just go, just get out of here, go. And my grandmother called and I answered the phone and she's all excited to hear from me. Hey, how are you doing? What are you doing today? I'm going to a movie. And my mom, I just watched the blood drain out of her face as I told her mother what I was about to go do. Terrible move on my part. She grabbed the phone out of my hand and anyway, but I'm sure that I enjoyed the movie. But this was particularly true when I went to go stay with my grandparents. Uh, So my grandparents were wonderful, amazing people, and they had a place in Michigan that I went to every summer for two or three weeks. It was seriously like the highlight of my entire year. I looked forward to it all year long. I had a friend up there named Chris Wenzel. He lived in their neighborhood. He looked forward to it all year long. And they had a house on the Kalamazoo River, and they had two boats that my grandfather started letting me use at like the age of maybe eight insane. He was nuts, or really awesome, or both. 
And so he first started letting me use this little aluminum rowboat kind of a deal with, you know, like, I don't know, like a 10 horsepower engine or something, you know, with the throttle on the handle deal. And man, we just went everywhere, Chris and I. Like, I mean, as long as we had gas in the tank, we were gone. And the only time we came back was when the tank was running low or we needed money or we needed food. That was it. Otherwise, it was adventure time. And then when I was probably 9, 10, he said, okay, you can take out the big boat, which as I reflect on it, was like 16 feet long, all right? But, but it felt like a cruise ship, you know, compared to the other thing. And it was nice and it was fiberglass and had like a hundred, you know, horsepower outboard engine on the back. And we took the big boat everywhere, including out into Lake Michigan. So we would go through Saugatuck, if you're familiar with the area, and we'd go out the inlet, and we'd take a left and we'd go south and we'd go to the public beach. And the reason that we would go to the public beach is because we figured that there would be girls at the public beach, and we were 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old boys, and, I mean, we had a boat, you know? Like, I mean, it was like the coolest thing ever. So we wanted to be seen, okay? And the first time that we did that, I had never set an anchor before on a boat, so, like, I had no idea that if the water's, let's say, 10 feet deep, you need at least, you know, 30 feet of line, I just kind of threw it over the side, you know, and tied it off, and I figured that's what you do. So we did that and swam in, and it's like freezing in that water for a Florida guy. And we're on the beach, and we're hanging out, and we're trying to be seen, and we're talking to girls, or trying to at least. And, and like, we've been there a while, and then I look out at the boat, and it's on its way to Chicago. <laughs> Seriously, like, I had a heart attack at the age of 10, and we ran in the water and we swam after the boat and finally we got there, <laughs> you know. So it was Disney World. Actually, it was better than Disney World, except on Sundays. On Sundays, we didn't do much. So on Sunday morning, we'd wake up early, uh, have a quick breakfast. We'd get in the car. We'd drive to Holland, Michigan, which is where the church was, and we would be there early because we are Dutch and we are Hendrixes, and apparently there's just not a lot of these people in South Florida, I've noticed. Take that any way you want. <laughs> We'd be there early, and we'd be there extra early because my grandmother was the organist, and so she would have to rehearse with the choir beforehand, and so she'd rehearse with the choir, and you know, I'm like 10, and everybody there, I was pretty sure, was like 110, and I mean, you got to see that from a 10-year-old perspective. Like, if you're 10, okay, you think somebody who's 30 really ought to have a will, you know what I mean? Like, because you're pretty sure they're not going to make it much longer. So it felt that way to me, and I'd draw pictures on the little tithing envelopes, and, and then we'd do the service, and I'd be starving, and then we'd go back home, and my grandmother would bring out a feast, I mean like a banquet, but she made it all the day before. Thou shalt do all thy work in six days, you see? And so she'd heat it up, and we'd eat it, and then we'd go into the front room of the house, and my grandmother had an organ and a piano, but she would play the organ on Sunday afternoons. And she would just play and play. And that was actually my favorite part of the day. I would sit on the bench next to her and she'd just play and play and it was beautiful. But then after that, my grandfather would put on golf and he would lay down in his lazy boy chair and he would go to sleep. And then my grandmother would sit on the couch and she would knit and watch golf. And I would do nothing. <laughs> Not because I didn't ask. So I, I would say, you know, I mean, can, I, can I ride my bike? Because they had a bike for me up there. No. Can I go swimming? No. Can I go out in either of the boats? I don't care. I'll downsize to the rowboat. No. Uh, can I go to Chris's house? Because I'm pretty sure that's where fun lives on this day. No. Can I ride around in the lawnmower? My grandfather would let me take the lawnmower out like it was a go-kart. <laughs> and it was awesome. Like, 
and I would put it in reverse. He's in heaven now, so it's okay. I put this in reverse, and I'd go as fast as I could backward, and then I'd throw it into drive, you know, because I'm 10, and I'm a boy, and my brain doesn't finish developing till I'm 25. And, and, and I would literally, and like the back tires would go, you know, in the street. And I discovered that if I did that down a decline, I could get the tires, the front tires, off the ground, which is actually could kill you. So don't do that if it came all the way over. So I, I should have left that out. But can I do that? No. Can I go fishing right outside? You can watch me from here. I'll just sit on the side of the river. And I, I just want to wet the line. I won't even put on a, you know, a worm or whatever. No. No, you can't do that. And so Sunday for me was a day in which thou shalt do nothing. And it was hard as a kid. And what I've discovered as I've grown up is that it's hard as an adult too. And the reason for that is because this commandment comes to me and it comes to you. God's coming to us and he's saying, hey, here's, here's what I want you to do. And by the way, it's the fourth commandment. It's not the fourth suggestion. Something we ought to think about. Something we ought to keep in mind. He's saying, I want you to get all your work done in six days. And then on the next day, that seventh day, I want you to take all of your work, all of the stuff that you would ordinarily occupy yourself with, and I want you to set it aside entirely for 24 hours. <sighs> and I want you to worship, and I want you to rest, and I want you to spend time consciously reflecting on who I am and on all that I've done for you and on who you are in me and on all that you have in me. And that is a very, very difficult thing, at least for me to do, and I don't think I'm alone on this. But I will tell you by experience that when in faith you do that, it is good for your soul, as well as your body, as well as your mind, as well as your emotions. God knows what He's doing, guys. I think one of the things that we need to change in terms of the way that we think about God is we think that, uh, that God is a taker, you know. God comes to take from me. God is threatening to me. God wants me to not do this. And not, you know, it's like He was invasive in our lives. And He is invasive in our lives. I will agree with that, but not to take from us. He comes to give. God is ever and always giving. He is a giver. He is infinite. He has no needs. He doesn't need a thing from us. But He's constantly giving things to us. He's designed us. He knows what's best for us, and He knows that we pretty routinely don't know what's best for us or think that we do, but it doesn't always work out that way. And so He comes to us and says, all right, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to command you to do something that's going to be hard for you to do initially until you kind of get the hang of it, and then it's going to become your favorite day of the week. And I'm going to command you to do it because it's good for you. Did you ever do that with your kids? We do it all the time. And the kids don't always appreciate it initially, but they get it in the end. So let's read it again. Exodus 20, beginning in verse 8, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That is to say, to keep it separate, to realize that it is a different kind of day, fundamentally, and it's not our day. Keep that in mind. Six days, not five, you shall labor and do how much of your work? All your work. 
But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock. Not even the animals are supposed to work. Everybody gets a break, even the sojourner who is within your gates. And here's why. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and then what? He rested on the seventh day, which begs the question of why. Why did God rest on the seventh day? Surely he was not exhausted. He's inexhaustible. He rested on the seventh day to set a pattern, an example that we are to mimic and that he commands us to mimic for our own good of one day of rest in seven. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. All right, a couple of quick questions. You say, well, the seventh day is Saturday, so why aren't we talking about Saturday? Why don't we have church on Saturday? Why aren't we meeting on Saturday? And honestly, I want to spend most of our time talking about something else that I think is more fundamental. But I do want to say that, you know what? Honest people disagree on this. Bible-believing people disagree on this. There are some really wonderful followers of Jesus who think Saturday is the day, and there are some really wonderful followers of Jesus who think Sunday is the day. The only thing in defense of Sunday that I'm planning at least to say is that the overwhelming majority of the Christian theologians, pretty much every significant theologian in the history of the Christian church and the overwhelming majority of Christians um, have believed that Sunday is the day of the Christian Sabbath. And the reasoning for that primarily is because Sunday is the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. And you say, all right, but what about fishing? I mean, that's kind of a live question for us. What about skiing? What about boating? Uh, What about going out to eat? And I'm really honestly not planning to spend a lot of time on that either. I will tell you that I massively respect the way that my grandparents and the conviction with which and the consistency with which they observed the Christian Sabbath. I do believe that you can rest and mow your yard unless that's what you do the other six days of the week occupationally. I think you can rest and fish. I think you can rest and, and do active things. I really do. But I do think there's a question we ought to consider as we do those things. Because the day is the Lord's. And it is the day of worship, not just the church service. In other words, it's supposed to be a day on which we're reflecting and remembering God's goodness to us and who He is and all of these different things. And I think as you come to these different activities, you ought to be asking yourself, can I praise God for this? Can I rest in a way that allows me to reflect on Him and engage in this particular activity as I do it? The next question is, but then where does that whole worship piece come in? Because it wasn't in the commandment that we read, was it? We got the rest part. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. The seventh is a Sabbath. Got it. So where's the worship part come in? And it comes in in Deuteronomy 5. So Moses restates the law, and he restates this commandment verbatim, and then he adds something to it when he says this. He says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. So that's what they remembered on Saturday, their Sabbath. They remembered their deliverance from Egypt, which is one of the things that we've been studying now for months. The question is, what do we remember? We remember a far greater deliverance through a far greater Moses who is Jesus, the true Passover lamb, the one who has shed his infinitely valuable and infinitely righteous blood that those who claim that blood as the payment for all of their sin are covered over and in the end passed over in judgment by the Lord God. 
Guys, that's what we remember. That's what we reflect upon. That's what we meditate upon. And so then the Christian Sabbath is a day upon which we take all of the things that we would otherwise ordinarily, occupationally occupy ourselves with and set them aside for 24 hours, deep breath. Okay, all right. And what do we do? We rest and we worship and we reflect upon the goodness of the Lord to us in Jesus. And since I already know what you're thinking... I'm just going to say it, okay? You're thinking, wow, that sounds great, and I can't do that, and here's why, because I'm too busy. It's the bottom line. I'm too busy with work. My kids are too busy with sports, which is a pretty related issue, massively unpopular for me to say, but it's true, and I think that that ought to be given some thought, sports. I do. Not too invasive for you? Listen, nobody intends to do this, but I want you to think about the unintended message when we come to our kids and say, hey, we're going to check out of worship for the next three months or however long it's going to be so that you can play in sports. What you're saying is, without meaning to say it, nobody sets out to send this message, but what you're saying is that worship is more or less optional and in sports seasons, it's less important than that. Isn't it? And that's a tough one. You know, I played sports, and it might be hard for you to believe now, but I did. I did. Uh, You know, my kids played sports. I got it. I had to have those conversations where it's like, okay, we're in this baseball league and now we're playing on Sunday mornings. And we're like, yeah, we can't do Sunday mornings. And I mean, that's really limiting. We we live in a world and in a city where sports-wise, we don't respect this day. And I, I get that. I understand that. We can't expect everybody to go along with our particular rhythm of life. I, I understand. But it's something that we need to work out with our families. And we need to remember that as wonderful as it might be to raise up the next Alex Rodriguez or Serena Williams or whatever it may be, truly rare, extraordinary athletic people, it's not our goal as parents. Our goal is to raise up the next truly great and extraordinary follower of Christ. So I put that out there, no guilt intended, but something to think about. And yet you say, well, it's not even the sports for me, man. I am just too busy. So here's what I want to do. I want to ask you what drives your busyness. And I'm going to give you a suggested answer. It might not be the right answer, or at least the whole answer. I think it's one that we all struggle with to some degree. And I think the answer is that it is my quest, it is your quest for importance and significance. It's an identity issue. And so then sometimes it's by means of busyness alone that we try to produce our own importance and create our own significance. Sometimes it's something else by which we're trying to produce our own importance and create our own significance, but that something else, that pursuit, makes us crazy busy. And in either case, we end up in the same place, which is what? Exhausted and far from the Lord. So if it's busyness alone by which you're trying to produce your own importance and create your own significance, then the busyness myth that is subconsciously driving you is this. It's if I'm really, really, really busy, then I must be really important and significant because, good grief, look at all the the emails I get and the text messages I get and the phone calls I get. Look at all the contacts I have in my phone. Look at all the meetings that are on my schedule. Look at all the deals that I'm involved in making right now. Look at all the relationships that I'm managing. Look at all the people and responsibilities that I have piled up upon myself. How could I not be important and significant. And why is it that about three times a day, I want to flush my phone down the toilet. I want to get on an airplane. I want to fly to like, I don't know, Nowhereville, Alaska. And then I want to get on a dirt bike and ride up some trail to some cabin with food that I can then stay in. 
so that I can just take a breath. I'm exhausted and I'm far from the Lord. Sometimes we do that just simply by means of busyness. That's how we're trying to satisfy this pursuit. But other times we do it through something else, like success, in which case the busyness myth that subconsciously drives you goes something like this. If I can become really successful, then I must be really important and significant, and so then what do I do? I, I, I make myself crazy busy trying to become really, really successful so that I can be really important and significance, and success is typically defined in terms of one's ability to acquire and and cultivate and grow wealth, and there is absolutely nothing wrong with acquiring or cultivating wealth. There is something really wrong, however, with making that your identity, with making that the means by which you become important and significant. That's not just a violation of the fourth commandment, it's a violation of the first. And so what does God do? He comes to us with His law because He wants to take from us. Is that it? No, because he wants to give to us freedom that he's trying to regulate into our lives. I'll give you an example. Unpopular. What about tithing? Does God need that money? Is that the deal? He needs it. That's right. Like he's short on rent this month and he's going, good grief. I don't know. If this guy doesn't come through for me, we're done. He's calling the angels in. He's going, I'm sweating it out up here. I mean, come on, seriously. Does he? He doesn't need it. We need to give it to break us of this idolatry, to remind us regularly that 100% comes from Him, that our safety and security is not found in something as fickle as the economy. It's found in something as unmovable and unshakable as our God. And here's the deal. When we try to produce our own importance, create our own significance by means of success, we end up exhausted, guys, and we end up far from the Lord And I think others try to do it by different means. Some of us try to do it by busyness. Some of us try to do it by success. I think some of us try to produce our own importance and create our own significance by just trying to keep everybody happy, by pleasing everyone. In which case, the busyness myth that subconsciously drives you is, listen, if I can just gain and keep the approval of X number of people, if you will, then I must be important and I must be significant. And so, you know, if that's you, then you've got to do your honey-do list, and you've got to coach all of your kids' teams in absolutely every sport, or at the very least, you have to be at every practice, and at every game, and at every recital, and at every rehearsal, and I'm not against going to those things, or even doing that. You have to volunteer at church, and in a thousand other organizations as well. And then, of course, there's social media, which a lot of us use not just to have fun with or to kind of keep up with people in, but subconsciously, like we don't realize we fall into this. We don't set out and intend to do this. But before long, what we're doing without realizing it is we're managing our public persona. We're we're managing our presentation to the world. Why? Because we're trying to derive our self-worth and value and significance and importance by how many followers and friends and likes and all that other stuff that we can get, which is why we care about how many we get. It's why we check how many we get. It's why we check how many other people get. Ever do that? Don't lie. Thou shalt not lie. Everybody does that. Pastors do that. I mean, come on, we all do that. And it's exhausting and it leaves us far from God. And meanwhile, God's going, hey, I I have this fourth commandment, not fourth suggestion for you, that I've given to you not to take from you, but to give to you. And it's specifically designed, first of all, to give you rest 
from all of the chaos that you otherwise have to deal with. And in that rest, it is specifically designed for you to meditate upon how valuable you really are. My goodness, you are to reflect and to meditate upon the fact that I, the God of the universe, think so highly of you that I have given the life of my precious son to purchase you, to bring you back to me, to win you out of your brokenness and out of your selfishness and out of your shame and out of your guilt, to heal you and to make you my own forever. And here, I think, is the promise in many ways of this commandment. It's God coming to us and going, listen, you got six days to get it done. Get it done. But know this, you're not the only one working for you. I, God, work for you. I will make you productive. And in that, you can find rest. I mean, the reality is, and we forget about it all the time, and that we live in a supernatural world. So it was supernaturally created. It is supernaturally sustained, and not by me, and not by you, but by God himself. And so what that means is that there is a God factor to my life and to your life that we need to remember, wake up to the reality of, and practically consider, and that frankly ought to allow us to come home at night and have dinner with our families more often than not. To do what a friend of mine and his family do, they've got like a basket, it's a phone basket, and so when they have dinner together, they put their phone on vibrate, they put it all in the basket, they put the basket somewhere where you can't hear the, uh, uh, you know, right, where it doesn't vibrate and fall off the table because it's buzzing so much. You can do that. Maybe you can just leave it there. <sighs> just for a little while, you know, you can help clean up after dinner, and then if you're feeling really crazy and full of faith, then maybe you can go play ball with your kids in the street or whatever. Read a book. You can do these things. You can take your son or daughter to dinner with mom or dad once a month. That reality of the God factor in our life should allow us to spend time with God in personal worship and prayer every day. And yes, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to give God his day and to spend it the way that he calls us to spend it. Because here's what rest is. Rest is an opportunity for each one of us to trust in God's work on our behalf more than in our work on our behalf. And when you take the step of faith necessary to do that, what you begin to discover is that God makes you more productive in six days than you are presently in seven. It's remarkable. Remember years ago, I think it was like four years ago, Beth and I took a trip with Matt and Dee Dee, and, um, and we just went out of town. We stayed in a condo somewhere and, and just had fun for like three days, two nights. So before we left, we talked about the fact, Matt and I did, that we're going to take our phones and turn them off in the car on the way. And then we weren't going to turn them back on again until we basically pulled back into town. And that was nuts, right? I mean, that's just, who does that? We just said to everybody, you know, the kids and, you know, Ken here at the office, look, if you need us, if there's an emergency, call Beth or Dee Dee, but otherwise, we are totally out. And here's what happened in those three days. It was amazing. So each morning that we woke up, for starters, the sun came up. It's incredible. Like, it didn't need us at all. Neither did anyone else. You know, you're only indispensable until you blow up or die, and then the sun comes up, doesn't it? Somehow everything keeps going. It's remarkable. It's a shot to the ego. It's a little bit humbling, but it's also a little bit freeing. Think about it. 
God's coming and saying, hey, don't forget me in your labors and remember me in your rest. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And far from ruining this day makes it the greatest day of the week. So, what keeps you from observing it? Or let me ask it differently. What's driving your busyness? Because whatever it is, this day is intended by God to break you free from the grip of that. So ponder all that stuff. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in and through faith in Jesus, we have freedom and we have joy. We have relief. We have rest. We find in our God one who works on our behalf, who multiplies time just like the Lord multiplied bread. Lord, we thank you that we don't walk through this life alone, but instead, through faith in Christ, your Spirit lives within us. And Lord, we walk through it together with you and with each other. And so then, Father, I pray that you would speak to us about our busyness, about the real motivations that lie beneath it and behind it, that you would unveil those things to us, but not to make us feel ashamed, but to free us from them, to make us feel secure and the security that is ours in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for loving us so much that you sent your Son to die for us, that we might have life, for in that is significance and importance indeed. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.